1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Laura Kremel to talk about the wonderful book she published with the, with the University of Wales Press called "A Romantic Medicine and the Gothic Imagination: Morbid Anatomies." Laura, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, before we start, can you please introduce yourself to us tell us how you were how you got interested in literature, and specifically Gothic literature? That's a topic that I'm really interested in myself.
0: Sure. Yeah, so I am an academic in the US. Um, I am mostly in the kind of the east of the US. um, And I work in the fields of Gothic studies, health humanities, history of medicine, uh, British romanticism. And I also dabble in things like disability studies, death studies, and film studies. Um, And so I am just in the process of moving into a new position at Niagara University as their newest assistant professor. Previous to that, I was an assistant professor at South Dakota School of Mines and Technology for a couple of years. Um, and then I moved to outside of Boston at Brandeis University for just about a year. And now I'm, I'm starting this uh, new endeavor at Niagara University. So the last couple of years, I've really been kind of looking for my academic home so I can really focus on my research. Um, how did I get started interested in literature? It's a great question. Um, I've always been interested in scary stories, even growing up. I was not a horror film. fan until kind of my adult life so that was a little bit slow to begin but I've always been interested in things like goosebumps and ghost stories and uh, there was this great series of books growing up called um, stories to tell in the dark and they had these uh, amazing illustrations that I remember reading as a child and so um, that kind of interest really was fostered in college when I had some outstanding professors who uh, introduced me to Frankenstein for the first time and that was you know love at first sight from there so that's kind of where i get my start it's it's not a very unusual start in my interest in in the gothic um but it has been um you know an evolving of evolving love
1: and uh, how did this book come about what was the inception point of the book
0: So this book did grow out of my PhD dissertation. So it's about 10 years in the making uh, before it finally came to print. Um, It really grew out of two really great discoveries that I made early on in my PhD. And one was the discovery of Matthew Lewis's poetry. So Matthew Lewis is one of the most well-known Gothic writers, but his fame today is usually restricted to his very infamous novel called The Monk. Uh, 1796 novel very scandalous in the time because it was very graphic It criticized the bible it was sexy and it was very very popular and so this was a book that uh, a lot of people were reading but it was also very scandalous to, to be seen reading Matthew Lewis was also an MP, which added to the scandal, and I had loved this book for years. Um, It's really interesting, I love to teach it now. Um, Students find that it is engrossing, even though, um, they're not really thrilled about reading a book from 1796 when we first start reading it, but they get really into it. And so I've been a fan of this book for years until I discovered that Matthew Lewis also wrote a lot of poetry. Um, and his poetry was just as gory and just as gross, but it was also really playful and fun. And I started noticing that Lewis had very particular ways of describing bodies that were different from other Romantic era de- depictions. And this made me wonder why. Why are, are his descriptions of bodies so gory? Why does he describe them in this particular way where there's lots of movement, lots of action in the body, even though it's a dead body? Um, and so I turned to medicine to find out what those concepts might be that had been impacting him. And so the re- results of that study were really that first chapter, which is about vitalism. And the second thing I discovered was medical museums. Uh, I found them to be just fascinating triggers for the imagination. They seem to open up a whole other level of just medical narrative and human experience, um, really centers of inquiry in a way that is both visual um, and unafraid to confront some really difficult topics. And so I started going to medical museums. I started going to the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. I started going to the Hunterian in London where I was also doing research. um, and so the, the ways that, meta, that museums are telling their stories, I see is very similar to the way that Gothic is telling its stories. And I do think there's some shared narrative for better or worse. There's also a lot of problems with that in terms of the way that museums are using narrative, um, but it's a, a fascinating topic. And so the discovery of, of those kinds of places, paired with the discovery of Lewis's poetry, really jumpstarted this project.
1: Um, I I did my PhD thesis on Gothic literature myself, but only focused on Anne Radcliffe and Mary Shelley. But I did read a lot of those Gothic um, novels of the 18th century. And I remember that it was in 2011, I guess, I was exchanging emails with uh, a potential supervisor. And then in the email, she said that I see Gothic as an extension of medical discourse, something along those lines. I never Ah. understood what that meant. And I started my PhD, even by the time I finished PhD, because I didn't focus on romantic medicine or a medical discourse. And I never knew what that meant. But I did have to, like when I was re- writing on Frankenstein, I did have to read uh, a little bit about um, a vitality debate, which I found absolutely amazing. Uh, and when it's, it's sometimes, it may not be difficult, but you no, know, it. it we, we, it, it, it's a little bit challenging sometimes to define exactly what gothic is so I'm curious to know how you define gothic in the context of your book and also romantic medicine if you could broadly introduce these two concepts uh, would be great
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Gothic is extremely difficult to define. It's one of those things almost where you recognize it when you see it, but it's hard to explain why it's Gothic. Um, And there are so many different definitions that people use. Um, I tend to use the, the term Gothic tradition because I like that it is a repetitive force. It's something with ties to the past, but it's still something that is is living in every day like a tradition would be. Um, But other people use words like mode or aesthetic to describe what the Gothic is. So there's lots of different opinions on this. Um, And I also use the term Gothic imagination a lot in this book in particular. And I like that because it stresses... Um, or puts stress, rather, on possibility, creativity, access, participation. Um, So the person who is experiencing the Gothic imagination or accessing the Gothic imagination has a hand in its creation. Um, And so I like that kind of collaborative element, which does play into some of the chapters. Now, when I teach and write about the Gothic more broadly, I almost always come back to Chris Baldick's very well-known definition. And this is a definition from the Oxford book of Gothic tales. um, And I I have it in front of me, so I'll just read it. Uh, It's a great definition. And he says, for the Gothic effect to be attained, a tale should combine a fearful sense of inheritance in time with a claustrophobic sense of enclosure in space. So it's a um, the, the past coming back to haunt us, the return of the repressed, plus that important enclosure in space, that almost claustrophobic feeling. Time and space are both closing in. And he says that these two dimensions, reinforcing one another, produce an impression of sickening descent into disintegration. And you can see why I like this, this last part, because it's putting stress on that sickening descent. It's It's... Directly relating the gothic to the body, to unwellness, to disease and discomfort, and all the things that impact the body and make us pay attention to it. Um, So, that's the definition that I like to use when I'm teaching, and I often use it when I'm publishing. Um, And I, when I'm talking about the gothic in this book in particular, I am emphasizing that the Gothic effect is really created by the presence of Gothic tropes. Um, And these are repeated ideas that come up and up in the Gothic uh, over and over again. So like the Gothic castle, for example, is a trope. The the ghost is a trope. These are ideas that we just see repeatedly um, and audiences recognize them. They're, they're, They're powerful because audiences recognize them. They know how to respond to them. They know, okay, here is a cemetery. It's going to be haunted. Something bad's going to happen here. They know there's almost a trigger that, again, initiates that participation in the Gothic imagination. And critics of the Gothic and the Romantic era in particular really criticized these tropes as tired and lazy um, because they're just using the same thing over and over again. It becomes very predictable. But I see that predictability as a strength rather than a weakness. Um, And so I talk about those different tropes in my book. Each chapter is based on a different trope um, paired with a different medical concept. Um, And then what was the second question you asked?
1: (laughs) Uh, It was about this medical discourse or romantic medicine. Mm. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so r- romantic medicine, and this is medicine that is happening in the, the second half of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century. And what I think is really interesting about romantic medicine is it's largely happening before medicine became really standardized. Um, and what I mean by that was there's very l- little regulation. Um, there's very little standard- standardization in terms of education, Um, there's very little oversight into what people are doing, how they're doing it, who's in control. Um, And that means that there's lots and lots of possibility out there. So someone who might be termed a quack, so someone who does not have a medical... Uh, education who might be selling some kind of medicine, might be selling something just as real as someone who came out of medical school because of the way the information was shared, because of the way the information was open to be shared. um, It's it's very, very messy. The medical marketplace is very, very messy. And that makes it kind of a prime space for narrative-based medicine because we have a lot of um, reliance on the way that medicine is talked about, is explained. Uh, One of my larger arguments in this book is that medicine is always pulling from the Gothic because they know that that is going to be something their audiences recognize. So if there's something they really want to warn their audiences about, um, they will bring in kind of horror language to warn them about it. And they know that the audience will know, okay, that's a reference to all this literature I've been reading. I know how to respond to that. I know that's scary. I should stay away from that or prevent that. Um, so the Gothic and medicine, um, exactly as your, your, the scholar that you talked about described, they are really tied very closely together in the romantic period in particular. Um, and it's also important to remember that a lot of surgeons, a lot of physicians, a lot of scientists were themselves poets and writers and artists. So they didn't really see the arts and the humanities on one side and the STEM fields or the science, technology, engineering, and math fields on the other side they didn't see a dichotomy between the sciences and the arts in the way that we do today um because today we're, we're constantly trying to remarry those things to get the benefit they were already closely intertwined in the romantic period which also makes this um a great period to study in terms of both literature and medicine narrative is crucial for both
1: and um and this is what you mean when when, when you talk about gothic tradition having experiential and also experimental medical value. Am I right?
0: Yes. And and what I like about this, this is again going back to that boldness of Gothic tropes. And they are unafraid to confront some of the most disturbing aspects of the body because the Gothic values that disturbance um, just the way that medicine valued disturbance. One of the things that I talk about in terms of medicine in this book is a really important book um, called Morbid Anatomy written by Matthew Bailey. Um, And what this was, was it was basically a catalog of the most diseased parts of the body that Bailey had encountered. And Bailey had the benefit of having two uncles who are very famous surgeons, the Hunter brothers. Um, he was always in and out of hospitals. He had access to all these medical collections. He had seen a lot of diseased body parts. And so he starts to catalog them. And this is important because this is not happening in other textbooks. Other textbooks are focusing on uh, what we would consider to be the healthy or the normal body. And those were two concepts that were born out of this period. They were, there were Still fairly new. And so um, we have medicine valuing suddenly, with Matthew Bailey's book, um, unwanted bodies. And that's why I kind of took the subtitle of my book as Morbid Anatomies. It's drawing directly from. Morbid anatomy. Um, at the same time that we have the Gothic in its experientialness and its experimentalness, um, valuing the most disturbing parts of the body as well. And so it's not really something new to say that literature is uh, experimental. Often when I teach students who are not English majors, I tell them, "Okay, think about this text as a case study almost. It has larger implications that we can draw from it. Um, We can gain some uh, experimental knowledge from this without doing the experiment ourselves. Um, And so that's kind of that aspect of it. And then the experiential part is going again back to that participation of the Gothic imagination. as the reader is experimenting and participating, and as medicine is doing the same kinds of thing.
1: And uh, you, you, t- you talk about vitality debate, so I'm sure some listeners may not be familiar with this concept. What was vitality debate, and uh, when the, how did the Gothic tradition uh, contributed to this, uh, or reflected this debate?
0: Yeah, so this, these were the um, the debates about this concept of vitalism and vitalism, the, the debates themselves, let me just say the debates themselves happened in the first half of the 19th century. And they were a debate between William Lawrence and John Abernathy. Lawrence's teacher was John Abernathy. So they, they had this connection, this teacher student kind of connection. Um, and they were arguing about the way the body works and particularly the role of the soul in those workings. And the debate occurred because they were both interpreting the work of an earlier writer, John Hunter. And so it's that earlier work that I am more interested in than the later debates because they're trying to figure out what what did John Hunter mean when he was writing about the vital element in the 18th century. And what was meant by the vital element or vitalism is it's this concept that there is something that distinguishes a living body From a non-living entity. Um, So what is it that makes a an object that is not living different from, say, a plant or a human being or or anything that is living? There's some essential element. And they thought this is the vital element. This is what is separating living from non-living entities. But there was a lot of uncertainty about what that element was or where it resided in the body. And this is another thing that I love about the 18th century in terms of medicine is there is so much uncertainty, but it is never really seen as a negative. It's seen as something exciting. It's seen as an opportunity for discovery. And so there's a lot of uncertainty about this element. Um, They're trying to figure out what it is. And Hunter had a number of theories about what was the vital element and where it was. And one of those was that it was something in the blood. And so the idea behind the vital element is also that it is a form of self-protection. It is protecting the body. It is making the body self-sufficient. It has the, the body's own interests at heart. And so the blood was a very attractive place to think about this because of blood coagulation. Uh, So the the blood would coagulate that's seen as a protective measure against the body. It seems like it's something that the body is doing all by itself um, in order to then work under the body's best interest. So that was one theory. He also thought about the stomach as, as an area where vitalism might exist, but he was really focused on the blood. And so, in my first chapter, when I'm talking about Lewis's use of gore and blood, it's a very active element in the body. It's it's moving. It's it's um, participating in life, even when the body is dead. And so, what I what I do with the vitalism debates in my first chapter is, I think, okay, well, if medicine is focused on the vital element as making the living body very active, the Gothic seems to be using the same concept to make the dead body active and participating in its own narrative. And so I I kind of coined this term, the Gothic element, which is fashioned on the vital element. It works the same way. But it is, uh, in the narrative, motivated by revenge, motivated by justice. Uh, it's a way for victimized bodies to access the agency to kind of take control of their narrative again. And so it's acting in the body's best interests. It's functioning the same way. There's a lot of talk about um, corpses and there's still blood circulating in them. Or maybe there'll be, um, you know, uh, maggots that are in the body and they're circulating like blood. And so the same kind of medical observations are being made by Lewis about the body, but they're being made about a dead body. And so that's how I'm kind of using that idea of vitalism. Um, And it was a debate that went on for a very long time. And one one thought was, well, vitalism must be the soul. Um, And then other you know, physicians and surgeons that no; it's, it's more of a mechanical thing. So that's kind of where the debate lied.
1: And uh, one of the elements of Gothic novel is, is, is a skeleton. Whether we see it or not, it's, or there's rumor of a skeleton somewhere hidden. Uh, and in the book, you talk about the trope of skeletons in Gothic novels as signifying a loss of feeling or anesthesia. And that's uh, an idea I really f- find fascinating. And, and uh, I'm really keen to know more about that.
0: Yes, and this was a concept that I that I really worked to situate in the history because what I saw happening was a lot earlier than we see the use of something like anesthesia being used chemically in the operating theater. And so um, this is my this is chapter two, and it's kind of a direct reaction to Lewis's bodies, which are very active, they're very gory, they're they're dripping, um, and. I'm instead looking at the poetry of Charlotte Dacre, um, who was a huge fan of Lewis. She often modeled her work on his work, but for some reason she did not model her depictions of dead bodies on his depictions of dead bodies. And so her bodies, instead of being those dripping, goring skeletons are very cold. They're very dry. There's often um, mist or wind blowing through the skeleton. And so there's something going on there that is um, a little bit different. And so her depictions of skeletons are often lacking that gore that Lewis talked about. And so I wanted to think about how how is she doing that? Why is she doing that? What kind of values does she have that he does not have? And one of the things that she is always writing about, especially in her poetry, is she's always writing about women in pain. And usually that's emotional pain. It's mental pain. um, It's usually... uh, some kind of neglect that's happened. Um, And so what I do is I situate her empty bodies, her cold, dry skeletons in this narrative of pain. Uh, Because what's notable about these skeletons is they don't feel anything. And the protagonists in her poetry are not the skeletons themselves. They are women who are visited by skeletons, who are wishing to be like skeletons. Um, and so there are women who are very attracted to these forms of dead body. And my argument is because it's very obvious that those skeletons feel no pain. Now, there was this worry in the 18th century that um, some of the organs of the body might continue to feel pain after death. Um, but when you have a completely empty, completely dry, completely devoid of anything skeleton, there's no possibility for there to be any pain associated with that death. Um, and so I'm using this idea of the skeleton completely lacking of any possibility of pain to, to show both that um, Daker is saying that we need to, to really pay attention to women's pain and, and take it seriously. Something that we continue to need to do today. Um, but she is especially saying the pain of melancholy, the pain of depression, those kinds of pains need to be taken seriously um, while also showing a more cultural wider desire for pain management, um, anesthesia and the the early forms of that word anesthesia were thought to be a lack of, of feeling almost in a negative sense. Um, so you lose feeling in your arm. That might be a bad thing. Um, whereas this chapter is showing that actually there is a desire for that lack of feeling, for other reasons. So it's it's really demonstrating a desire for pain management in an era before that pain management existed. So the anesthesia didn't come into use until the 1840s, and Dacre's poetry is at the turn of the century, so early uh, 1800s. And so that is kind of uh, predating when we were ready to actually use those, those forms of pain management.
1: We took it all. And what is counterfeit corpses, false corpses in Gothic literature? And that's the title of your fourth chapter.
0: Yes, and so um, this is the idea um, that I am actually borrowing this this concept um, from Gerald Hogel, who is a very well-known academic, um, and he coined this term, uh, the ghost of the counterfeit. And by this concept, he means, um, I'm actually just going to quote him here, he means that, that Gothic figures are always signs of other signs hearkening back to still other ghost-like memory traces such that there is no solid grounding point to be accessed behind or beneath them. And what he means by this, and he's really taking this from Horace Walpole's novel, The The Castle of Otranto, what he means is the Gothic is often a copy of a copy of a copy in such a way that there is no tie to the original. And so when he's thinking about the castle of Otranto when he's coming up with this term, this book is about a castle that's haunted. It's haunted not by the ghost of an actual dead person, but the ghost of a painting. So if we think of a painting as already a representation of a person, a copy of a person, It's not the real person. So going back to to Magritte's painting uh, about the the, the pipe, this is not a pipe. Um, A painting is not a person, but the ghost is the ghost of the painting. And so we have a, a counterfeit, if a ghost is also a counterfeit of a person, a counterfeit of a counterfeit. And that painting is of a person pretending to be something that they're not. So we have a counterfeit of a counterfeit of a counterfeit and so the gothic does this all the time it's obsessed with these layers of fakery there will, will often especially in the early gothic be characters who turn out to be uh completely different from who they are they either are performing a role or they suddenly realize that they have ties to royalty or um there's all this kind of identity fakery happening and this is happening throughout the gothic so That's this concept of the ghost of the counterfeit. Counterfeit of a counterfeit of counterfeit layers of performance and fakery that prove themselves to be kind of empty representations, so far removed from what they claim to represent that there's nothing real to them. So there's this ghost in Castle of Toronto not at all really tied to that original something, whatever that something is. Um, and so this concept also means that there's a lot of hollowness to this objects. They're all show. And that hollowness is instead often filled with ang- the anxiety that gives them power and that keeps them going. So for example, in Castle of the Toronto, there's a lot of anxiety about um, inheritance and class and economics. And so those empty things are kept in order to make it seem like a certain family has things that they don't. Um, they desire to have the value. So they're made to look valuable. Um, and so this is this concept of the ghost of the counterfeit that I'm borrowing from. And when I'm applying it to, um, bodies, when I say counterfeit corpse, these are bodies that, uh, Seem to be corpses, but they are not actually corpses. So, for example, uh, someone is murdered, and the murderer gets freaked out because suddenly they're in the room with a corpse. Um, and so they flee the scene and they never stick around to make sure that that body actually is dead. And so, of course, in the Gothic, uh, that body is going to come back, that body is going to recover, and it's going its, it's to continue to have its own narrative. Um, and so that will be a counterfeit corpse. It's a corpse that never actually became a corpse, but the murderer continues to act as if that body were no longer in existence, as if that were a corpse. And so, this is important in medicine because I'm tying this to anxieties about the corpse more broadly, especially when it comes to things like dissection and um, using dead bodies in medicine to learn, to educate, uh, to discover things. Um, dissection in the 18th century and even then in the 19th century was associated with criminality because the mid 18th century law made dissection part of the punishment of of execution. So an executed criminal could be handed over to anatomists who could then dissect the body before an audience, before students. Um, And so it was directly associated with punishment and punishment for horrible crimes. And so that association meant that, of course, no one is uh, volunteering to uh, have their bodies dissected but they badly needed to be able to dissect bodies and medicine to learn um, because there was really no other way to do it. And so um, even into the early 19th century, it went from being associated with punishment to then then poverty. Um, There was a new law that said that anyone who was um, a a poor body unclaimed in hospitals could also be dissected. So kind of expanding that law to give more bodies to uh, physicians and surgeons. And again, so no one is volunteering to do this because it has such bad associations. And the Gothic is really saying, hey, this is a bad thing, I think, because it's showing all of these characters who refuse to confront bodies, who refuse to investigate bodies, who refuse to empirically learn about the bodies um, that they have just killed. And so it's kind of showing, here's what happens when you ignore these resources, um, bad things are going to happen.
1: And uh, as, as I said earlier, I did part of my PhD on Anne Radcliffe, but I never, um, never associated Radcliffe with dissection. And that's something to talk about in the book. I guess I left all the dissection parts to, to uh, <laughs> Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I'm really curious to know how, how works of Anne Radcliffe signify the fear of dissection.
0: Yeah, it's, it's working in the same way. And she is so interesting to talk about in relation to Mary Shelley because where Mary Shelley is not afraid of bodies and, and includes a lot of bodies, it's not that Anne Radcliffe, I I can't say that she's afraid of bodies, but her work often shies away from bodies. She has this concept of terror and horror that she theorizes in. And terror is thought to be almost like suspense where, where you don't want to see the monster. And it's, it's thought to be a, a heightened form of fear, whereas horror is kind of the, the gore of, of Matthew Lewis's horror. It seemed to be kind of a lower, like a cheap shot o- almost. Um, and so that's why you see very little gore in Radcliffe's work, because she's really championing um, um, that terror where she's not going to show you things. Um, but my argument is that it's actually in not showing things that the imagination comes in. So, when thinking about mysteries of Udolpho, there aren't actually that many dead bodies in that novel, but the protagonist Emily imagines that there's a lot of, of bodies, and so that makes that makes the bo- the book full of bodies because as Emily is imagining all these different bodies, she is sharing her fear of them, her shock. Um, her panic about them with the reader. And so suddenly that book is full of bodies. Emily is seeing them around all these different corners, um, encouraged by her imagination, of course. And because she is seeing them around every corner, she does not investigate what she needs to investigate um, and a lot of opportunities to save herself and others are lost because she is afraid of those potential bodies.
1: And uh, you talk about, when you were introducing yourself, we you talk about disability studies. Uh, can you briefly tell us what it is? And um, then in your book you, you you discuss the trope of devil in Gothic literature which serves in a way to subvert the idea of a perfect body. So how how does Gothic come into play with disabilities? Disability studies?
0: sure Um, so so literature has kind of a fraught relationship with disability and disability studies is kind of the study of the way that uh, disability is depicted it's the way that disability is constructed culturally Um, it is about the experience of disability and the role that that plays in the larger cultural representation of disability Um, and so i'm looking a lot at the cultural aspects of disability studies um, and as I said, literature is, has kind of a fraught relationship with disability and maybe even disability studies because of the traditionally exploitative ways in which literature has reduced disability to kind of a narrative device. So they'll bring in a disabled character because it serves a role in the narrative, not because that dis- disability has any right to exist in the narrative all on its own. Um, and so the Gothic has a lot to answer for in this regard, especially when making disability a trait of villainy. Um, and so if you see a character with a disability, it's, a, it's highly likely that that person is going to be a villain in uh, the context of the Gothic. Um, and so um, when I'm discussing this, and I, what I'm really hoping to show is that there are some positive ways that we could read this relationship between literature and disability and especially the Gothic and, and disability without disregarding all of the stuff that it has to kind of answer for all of that baggage that we also need to recognize. Um, And I do this by looking at a very strange novel called The Three Brothers by Joshua Pickersgill Jr. in which a man injures his back and develops a twisted spine. And this is a very, very long novel. So this is really only one of the narrative threads in the novel. And so this man uh, develops this twisted spine And because of it, his family and his friends completely disown him. He loses everything, his social status, um, his wealth, every potential that he previously had. He loses because suddenly he is seen and treated as unrecognizable compared to his former self. And this is where we see the villain starting to develop because we're supposed to feel pity for him. We're supposed to see how a twisted body is leading to a twisted mind and everything horrible he does in the book is excusable because here is an explanation for it. And so that's all very pr- problematic because then that's, that's playing into this idea that the disability only exists in the narrative and it has this purpose and it's a very negative purpose. But this story is much more complicated than that, as I argue. This character then goes on to make a pact with the devil for an impossibly perfect body. So he sells his soul. He says, I want this impossibly perfect body. He has a choice of bodies that he chooses from. And so he becomes this beautiful, strong, and powerful person. But then still becomes a villain and what's interesting interesting about this story is it's not told chronologically we meet him as this perfect villain before we realize that he does have this background in which he experienced disability. And so what I want to argue um, that this book shows us is, one, that the idea of the body as a constant um, and constant enough to base an identity on is completely null and void because the body is always changing, Um The many changes of the body, along with a narrative not being told chronologically, they create that sense that there's absolutely no certainty about the body. We cannot be sure of our body. Um, And this is something that often comes up in disability studies. Rosemary Garland Thompson is is a really well known writer in Gothic study or in disability studies, rather. And she says, Basically, if we live long enough, we're all going to become disabled. So really, there's you, you really can't put much stock in the way your body is today. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? So this book really shows how flexible the idea of the body is. Um, and, and disability may come in and out of our lives because there is no reliable static entity that is the body. And second, I also look at the social and historical treatment of those with disabilities in the novel to kind of look also at how that is corresponding more broadly. I bring in Lord Byron, who had some negative experiences with disability in terms of the doctors that he saw and the treatment that he faced. Um, And so I'm looking at those ties as well. And I'm arguing that actually the real horror in this book is not what this villain is doing. It's how he was treated previously in terms of what his disability was and what he lost because of it um and so the devil really is he is a, a key player in the novel but he's not the main source of horror as you would expect him to be and so that's kind of the subversion that i'm talking about
1: and uh, what was the what was coleridge's idea of gothic why did he believe that gothic is dangerous to readers and on the other hand Mary Shelley. Uh, believe that Gothic is protective
0: um, so so Coleridge had a very contentious relationship with the Gothic, largely because he wrote a lot of critical reviews of Gothic works. so he would he would basically review them uh, for the press. and so he got very angry at the the formulaic tropes and the repetitive nature of them. Um, so he saw them as kind of just cheap shots. He saw them as cheap, mindless entertainment, failed to elevate the mind because it's the same. Uh, ideas over and over again, but also bringing in violence and gore, um, trying to appeal to these cheap thrills. So he just saw it as um, have no value whatsoever. He wanted to create literature that would elevate the mind more. And there is this really great quote um, that I'm going to read from his review of Matthew Lewis's The Monk. So he's very angry about The Monk. Uh, he, he specifically didn't like the representation of the Bible in The Monk, but he also had lots of other qualms about it. And here is what he says about it. He says, Situations of torment and images of naked horror are easily conceived. So there, there we see him dismissing the Gothic as this is so easy to write. It's, it's cheap. Uh, And a writer in whose works they abound deserves our gratitude almost equally with him who should drag us by way of sport through a military hospital or force us to sit at the dissecting table of a natural philosopher. And a natural philosopher is really just the term that they use in the 18th century for a scientist. And so he is equating reading Gothic novels to being forced to to kind of sit through all this really gory, disgusting, traumatizing stuff that he is seeing as doing us no good. There's no no good to being dragged through a military hospital. You're not helping. You're not benefiting from it. You're not learning anything because you don't know anything about what you're seeing. Um, it's really just a tactic to disgust you, and there's no value to it. So that's, that's why he didn't like the Gothic. That was his view of the Gothic. However, what he did like about the Gothic was he was very envious of the um, – audiences that it brought in because the gothic was very well read and so some of his work does have gothic elements and it's that appeal that it's, it's that attempt to appeal to those same audiences while trying to elevate um, what is going on um, when we talk about mary shelley i'm not sure that she necessarily believes that the gothic is protective Um, But the way that I'm interpreting one of her novels suggests that it could be. So Mary Shelley um, was well known for being very knowledgeable about the science of the day, the medicine that was happening. Um, She was very well read. She was friends with a lot of people who were players in those kinds of things. She was also in this huge network of writers. So she knew Matthew Lewis, for example, she knew Coleridge. Um, She grew up amongst people who were very well educated. And so she's coming from a very strong standing of background in the sciences and literature at the same time. And so what I'm talking about with Mary Shelley is in reference to my last chapter, which is um, about her novel, The Last Man, which is a very long novel about a plague that wipes out the human race, leaving just one survivor. And she really wrote it um, when she was Experiencing a lot of loss herself, she herself felt like the last man. And so a lot of it is very autobiographical as well. But I'm, of course, interested in the plague element to it. And so I do not argue that it's a gothic novel. It's not really a gothic novel. But what's interesting about it is it's a novel in which the gothic narrative plays a strong part. What it is, is a series of creations of gothic narratives that the characters create in order to understand the horrific medical events happening. Um, And so there's this plague happening. A lot of information is spread through rumors. Um, And those rumors resemble the tropes of Gothic narratives. So again, they're drawing on those things that they recognize in order to try to understand a situation that they don't recognize. There is no public health messaging whatsoever in this book. Um, no organization. And again, this speaks to the disorganization of medicine in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, but there's no public health messaging a lot. This is, this is something that I, or there's no public messaging at all. And this is something that I thought a lot about because I was revising this project heavily during COVID. Um, and so when there's a lack of public health messaging, narrative is going to emerge and it's going to emerge in whatever way people are going to find the most useful for their purposes and so um, there's all these gothic narratives being spread about this plague they're usually spread through some kind of oral form like rumors And so I talk in this chapter about the difference between oral forms and written narratives. Um, Oral forms are much more contagious because of the way that they spread, whereas written forms require a little bit more participation, which gives them a little bit more control uh, or the participant has a little bit more control over them. And so I talk about um, the written narrative that is created by this lone survivor, He starts to record what's happening and he's creating a Gothic narrative by doing this. So he is using Gothic tropes, um, but the tropes that he's using are not the tropes of Lewis. He's not using that gore element. He's not using that shock value. He's using a couple other techniques that Coleridge would have approved of or might have approved of. I don't know if he approved of anything Gothic but um, he might have approved of and those are the the techniques of a framed narrative. So for example um, the Shelley's earlier novel, Frankenstein is framed by, um, this situation in the, uh, the frozen North, um, where we have a ship and we have Victor Frankenstein being picked up. And then he tells the narrative in the middle of the novel. And then we have the framing device at the end. So, so that book is full of different frames, stories, telling stories within stories. And so that technique is used The technique of fragmentation is used. So a lot of times there'll be missing parts in a Gothic narrative or parts where, oh, they found a manuscript, but parts of it are cut away or have been burned away. And so you have to kind of fill in the gaps. That is a technique often used in the Gothic. And then there's also this technique of introducing distance. So especially in the early Gothic novels, most novels were set Far away and long ago. So there's no actual danger to the reader of anything happening. And so I argue that when this character is trying to record what's happening, um, he's intentionally using those kinds of gothic strategies to protect the reader from a direct contact with the information which is proving to be very dangerous in the world in which he exists. Um, Because it seems like in this, this world, if someone hears a rumor about this plague, they are more likely to get the plague because they have been infected by both the rumor and the disease. And so the character who is recording what's happening as he's the last man um is introducing ideas that i'm connecting also to the history of vaccination um in this period he's introducing these extra protections to protect the reader and he's using the gothic to do it so it's a completely different use of the gothic um but still definitely part of that tradition
1: and it's uh, when we're talking about Coleridge, it's funny that he also used a lot of Gothic elements in his own poetry, Christabel, cr- if I'm not mistaken. And it's a pity he didn't finish it, it was left un- incomplete.
0: <laughs> he didn't finish An Ancient Mariner. I-, I talk about the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in this chapter, actually. Um, but what's interesting for him is he's again setting up those um, protections for the reader. So that poem has um, annotations in the margins to interpret the events for you so you're not directly interpreting the events so that's again putting distance between the reader and the material in ways that kind of replicate the ways that um, vaccination worked in uh, the the period and so he is using those protections he doesn't want the reader to get too close to anything that's too gory
1: Mm. Mm. Uh, Dr. Laura Kramer thank you very, very much for talking about your book on New Books Network. And I hope to be able to talk to you soon about your future work. Is there anything you're currently you. working on?
0: I have a couple different projects in the works, um, so I'm I'm still interested in the history of medicine. I'm looking at a project on um, the Gothic and identity-altering illnesses like dementia, uh, madness, addiction, those kinds of things. But then I'm also starting to get a little bit more interested in eco-criticism, um, and so I, I've been also working on a project on eco-burial in the Gothic. So I have a couple a couple things that I'm toying with. As soon as I like find my academic position where i'm going to stay mm-hmm.
1: uh, i i was working on eco gothic in a way myself mm-hmm. I mean, it was ecofeminism and when i started there were yeah. very very few articles or books there was only one book that came i guess in 2014 eco gothic mm-hmm. and there was one chapter about anne Radcliffe. but it was very very broad and it didn't really give me much information but i'm sure there's been more publications so i'm really looking forward to reading your future works
0: thank you so much